Welcome to the Canon Law Society of America podcast, where Catholic canon lawyers share their stories, their knowledge, and their love for the law. Now, here's your host with this episode's guest canonist. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Canon Law Society of America podcast series. I am your host for this episode, Donna Miller, Executive Coordinator of the CLSA. We are here today talking with Monsignor John Alessandro, a priest of the Diocese of Rockville Center, New York, and a member of the Canon Law Society of America for nearly 50 years. We want to welcome Monsignor Alessandro. Now, I know your name is John Alessandro, but you are called Jack. Jack. My <laughs> mother never wanted me to be called Johnny. Oh, oh never. So that's <laughs> so why she started calling me Jack. So you're a priest of the Diocese of Rockville Center, New York. So tell us where Rockville Center is. I've Rockville been Center the is the outer two-thirds geographically of Long Island, which okay. sticks out, you know, east from, west to east from Manhattan. Brooklyn and Queens are the inner two counties, and they remained part of the Diocese of Brooklyn, and the outer two counties, Nassau and Suffolk, was split off in 1957 to become the separate Diocese of Rockville Center. We used to all be the Diocese of Brooklyn. The oh. whole thing, the whole island, 120 miles long and 20, 30 oh. miles wide. So, oh. uh, and it was, of course, huge. It was huge. Even when we split off uh, the Nassau and Suffolk uh, Diocese of Rockville Center, already had 1.1, 1.2 million Catholics wow. just by itself. And oh right now we have 1.6 million Catholics. Oh, my goodness. Well, that's, that's a little history in geography and a little uh, history in church history. Church history. <laughs> An interesting thing, it's one of the few totally suburban dioceses. There's no real city. Uh, okay, okay. There always used to be a suburb of, of the, the New York City. You know, so. Oh, fascinating. So, yeah. so take us back. You've been a CLSA member for almost 50 years. So you right. studied, the, your seminary studies were in Rome also, and then you did, uh, you went right into Canon Law Studies? Yeah, that's a story there, actually. <laughs> uh, well, I did study at North American College at the Gregorian University in, uh, for theology from 63 to 1967. And then when I came home, I was assigned to a parish, St. Thomas in West Hempstead. And I was very happy there as a young priest and uh, was looking forward to remaining at least three years. I knew I might be sent for studies, but uh, usually they used to keep you three years, you know. Well, that wasn't to be. Uh, mm -hmm. All of a sudden in June, and this is the way things used to work back in those days, I got a letter that said in five days I had to move out of my rooms because I was going back to Rome to study. And that was it. There was no consultation or anything, you know. And then I found out I was going to study canon law. Now, I have a little bit of a canon law history. I don't know if you're aware of it, but a pretty famous canon lawyer was my uncle, was Cardinal de Bellacqua, eventually became a cardinal. He was the chancellor in, in Brooklyn at time. And uh, so I don't know, maybe they thought this guy must be ready for canon law because it's, it's in the blood. Uh, so at any rate, uh, I was not too happy about it, I have to tell you. So maybe if this happens to some younger canonists now, they'll, they'll appreciate that it's it's not just happening to them. And I really didn't want to do it. I wanted to study theology, yes, but not canon law. Uh, and it was actually the bishop's secretary at the time, Monsignor McGann, who became eventually the bishop of the diocese for many, many years, and whom I served for many, many years, uh, 
who convinced me to say, listen, you get your JCL and, and then perhaps you can get the STD. You know, uh, so I said, okay, that's, that's a fair enough compromise. So that's how I started the study canon law back in 1968. Literally, I was in my parish 11 months. My and then goodness. I had to get out. I literally had to get out of the rooms and because we, we were having a little pastoral thing that summer uh, in which we were going to have lots of group meetings and home masses and things. And would you believe that was the year that Paul VI came out with Humanae Vitae? Correct. So you can imagine yes. the topic of discussion at all of the uh, <laughs> And that's where I left, September of that year, when I had, headed back to Rome. And wow. was there for three more years for my doctorate in Camel. But what happened, just want to kind of give it like a little upbeat ending. <laughs> when I got there, I realized that the <clears throat> canon law, School of Canon Law in Gregorian University, which is where I went, um, with a good friend of mine, Bill Lavaro from the Diocese of Brooklyn, that it was very historically and theologically based. So there was an awful lot of background that you really were studying. And that, that stayed with me my whole life. Uh, and because of that, I didn't actually get my doctorate in theology. Uh, I, I just kept the STL that I had, and I did get the doctorate in the canon law. Yeah, in okay. medieval theology, medieval canon law, as a matter of fact. In oh. Marriage and Gratian's decree. So I, I take it you're fluent in uh, Italian? Italian, yes. Uh, <laughs> I uh, used to know a little Italian at home. My parents, my mother was spoke Neapolitan with her mother. Uh, and I'll tell you another funny story is when I, when I was in Rome and became more fluent because I was there for seven years, you know. One time a guy who was from, from Italy, from a Roman, says to me, you know, you have a, you have a Neapolitan accent. <laughs> and it, was, it must have been from all of the foods I knew that we used to eat and all the way I pronounced it when I wasn't thinking about the Italian. So yeah, I know Italian. But in those days, everything was not in Italian. It was in Latin. Okay. I studied totally everything in both theology and canon law. All lectures, all books, all tests, oral and written were in Latin. So you got mm -hmm. to know Latin pretty well. I, I would think so, yes. So then you came home. And what did you do when you got back then? after your canon law degree? Well, I ended up, uh, even though I was asked by the bishop, where did you want to do? And I said, I wanted to teach. So they put me in the tribunal. tribunal. That's the way the church worked, right? <laughs> I think religious life works that way, doesn't it? So, <laughs> so I bit. hear. <laughs> uh, so uh, at any rate, uh, yeah, I worked in the tribunal for a few years, three years. And then they moved me to the, become vice chancellor. And then eventually, after a couple of years, the chancellor, uh, and I enjoyed that because that was the general administration of the diocese. And I was chancellor for, I know this is hard to accept, but for 31 years, I was chancellor and vicar general and all different titles, vicar for administration. Uh, and eventually I was actually the diocesan administrator for a year when our bishop died suddenly, uh, Bishop uh -huh. McHugh. And uh, then I became a pastor for six years. And then after that, I taught at Catholic University for three years. And some of the canon lawyers today were my students. I enjoyed that very much. And then I went back to doing some work for the uh, chancery too. I did uh, laicization cases of priests who had been off for a long time, you know, away from the job for a long time and with special faculties that we had and helped out. But all this time though, I have to give you another saving grace. I always lived in a parish. Uh -huh. and I recommend it to anybody studying canon law that 
try to have you keep your feet grounded in a parish, in parish life. Uh, so for 31 years, I was at St. Joseph's Parish in Garden City, resident, and I know still know many, many, many people today from there. And then uh, when I was pastor, I was pastor for six years in Oyster Bay. And then uh, when I came back from Catholic University, I, um, I went back, strangely enough, to my old parish that I was first assigned to way back when I was first ordained, St. Thomas in West Hempstead. Now I'm living in the senior, senior priest residence in Amityville, but uh, technically, I guess I'm still part of St. Thomas Parish. When I uh, was looking over your CV, I, yeah. it reads like two or three people's lives to me. <laughs> so <laughs> tell, tell me a little bit about, you said in 1981, you were appointed by the president of the NCCB then to serve as the expert canonist for the American members of the Pontifical Commission for the Revision of the Code of Canon Law. So you had your hand in. Oh, yes. Revision. Well, so let's, tell us about should, that. First of all, you should know something that <clears throat> that was a major commitment on the part of the members of the Canon Law Society of America to the revision process. Don't forget, it started with the closing of the council. Actually, the commission was appointed even before the council were closed. And they were all these small groups that were meeting, people like Frank Morrissey, for example, and others uh, who were uh, very already well into canon law uh, studies. And they were part of these small groups, but that meant that the whole process of the code as it was being renewed was all like in little chunks, little pieces. Uh, and eventually it all got put together by the staff uh, under Cardinal Felici at the time and Archbishop Castillo Lara, who was the secretary, was a very good man, took over eventually when Felici died in 1982, I believe. So it got put into what was called the 1980 schema, 1980 schema. And that was the first time there was a book of canons, similar to the 1917 code. And this was the result of all of those working groups. And many members of the Canon Law Society of America contributed to those re renovations, the, the renewals. Uh, so that was what led to the Code Commission plenary, uh, plenary meeting, which was scheduled for October of 1981. And in order to be able to, to participate in that, the Code Commission got out of, the, out of Pope John Paul II a response to what many bishops had sought, which is kind of, kind of a compromise. And that was, many bishops said there should be a complete second consultation with individual bishops and conferences all around the globe for this book, now that we have the book, to see it all together. And they didn't want to do that. The Code Commission did not want to do that. Cardinal Felici did not want to do that because he just felt that would add another 10 years or something, you know. So instead of that, they appointed a new representative for the Code Commission from each, each or several of the conferences. And we, because we're a big conference, we, we got our own representative, and that was Archbishop Bernadine. He was added to Cardinal Kroll and Cardinal Cody. And they needed a paritas to guide them on this and to implement what they wanted. And they asked me, I was on the canonic, I was a consultant to the Canonical Affairs Commission. I had been the president of the CLSA in 1978. 
So I had the, the credentials that I was young enough uh, to, to be able to do the work, you might say. Uh, of course, I've been groomed a lot by other members of the society, which I wanted to mention too, is a very important mm -hmm. element of this, that the older members, not necessarily that much older, but uh, older members who had experience get you involved in the society and in this kind of work. Like Don Heinchel and uh, Jim Provost, who was just a little bit older than I actually, but he had been really involved already. Tom, Tom Green, who was mm -hmm. about three years older than I. So these people got me involved early on, 1971, when I came back from Rome. So by the time we get to 1981, that's 10 years later, uh, I had a little bit of a track record, I guess. And mm -hmm. uh, so they asked me to, to serve. And I had already, as a, I knew all of them because I'd been on consultant as others from our society had been for the Canonical Affairs Committee. So that was interesting because what we had to do is we had to examine, you ready for this, the entire code of canon law. Oh. <laughs> uh, and you had to pick and choose. And you had to make, uh, you had to write up formal animate versions uh, for the code commission. And uh, so in the end, cutting to the chase, uh, with the help of some of my fellow canonists, like the people I just mentioned, Tom and Jim and, and others, we put together 150 animate versions to send to the co-commission. In fact, one of my regrets I have that I've, I've never published those animate versions. I have them still, and they probably, and naturally they're in the archives of the code commission, maybe in Archbishop Bernadine's archives, I don't know. But uh, I have a copy myself, and I always wanted to compare, show the, the progress that occurred then. Uh, but at any rate, uh, those then were taken by the, by the uh, Code Commission staff and combined with, naturally this is happening for all the Code Commission people around the whole world, 70 people or something like that. And they, they put it all together and, and they gave like a response. Sometimes they accepted the recommendation, sometimes they didn't, et cetera. And then once all that was done, they produced what was called a relatio or a report. And that became the basis of the, of the Code Commission meeting for 10 days in October of 1981. And we all had to go there. Cardinal Cody didn't make it because he got very ill and he actually died later that year. Uh, Cardinal Kroll though did go and Archbishop Bernadine went and I went with them. And it was like a little mini council. It was just like a little mini Vatican council. Wow. Uh, there were all sorts of small meetings occurring. I remember Cardinal Hume, Basil Hume was, one of the people who would work with us and a lot of and the other and the Australians to try to get some of the points through. And I still remember to this day one kind of sad thing that we never got accomplished at that time. And that is we had recommended that the word veer, man, male man, okay, M-A-L-E, man, uh, be taken out of the, the uh, canons on the installation of liturgical ministers lector and acolyte, because these were now no longer minor orders on the steps to ordination, but were simply lay ministries, and therefore should be treated as lay ministries. And that was rejected by the Code Commission. We could not even get 15, we had to get 15 votes from the other commission members if you wanted to be able to get another agenda item on. And we tried to get this one on. And Archbishop Bernadine couldn't even get 15 signatures. 
But later on, it got taken care of, you know, but not, yeah. it should have been in the code. It was so logical that it should have been in the code. But uh, at any rate, that's an example of that. But it was a very exciting time. I could not go to, go to the meetings, but Archbishop Bernadine used to come back after every meeting and sit with me. And I would have my trusty computer and, you know, write down all of his notes and we would figure out what the next thing to do for the next day was and all that. So it was an exciting time. Wow. So that qualified you then, and you, our listeners can't see, and I think you can see I'm holding up the big oh, yes. red commentary and your, your name commentary. on page one as writing right. the general introduction. So tell us how that came about. Well, that was, of course, Tom Green and others, the three editors are the, you can see there. Um, they, uh, they knew that I was in a position, in a sense, to have an overview of the whole thing because of what I just told you. And so um, they, they commissioned me to do that. Uh, and it's pretty long, as you know, as you can see from it. It takes, uh, it goes quite, quite, a, quite a ways. But um, the interesting thing about it was, was also that, in, this is, I know it sounds like a, a little non sequitur, but it introduced me to computers in a real heavy way. <laughs> because my brother who was studying, my youngest brother who's 19 years younger than I, he was studying computer science and to work in Silicon Valley. And he left me his little PC. I'm talking two floppy disks, five and a, five and a quarter inch floppies. One had worse, not the little ones, no, no, no. You just said the big one, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, one was the program for WordStar and the other was the data disk. And I was able to do this article. That was my first article I did on a computer. Oh, wow. And it was so wonderful because I could do footnotes and stuff, you know, and it was great. Yeah. Uh, so I enjoyed it. I always remember how pleased I was with that article more from the way that I did it on the computer. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but, it, but it was great. Yeah, well, that leads into you were also very instrumental in getting this CLSA research database going. So oh, yes. That's one of my pet projects lately. One of my last pet projects, I guess you'd say, as I got older and couldn't do so much. Did um, you, you just saw the need for a place where documents could be? Yeah, well, stored? you know what it is, is that sometimes these documents are not easily accessible, uh, you know, from their own databases or even in general databases. Mm -hmm. uh, and when you have everything in a database that's specialized for canon law, it makes it much easier to do research. And it goes back to something that I, I, I've always felt was an important thing for our society. And that is, don't be, always know that research, studying theology, studying the history, and also where we're going as a church, all of that is extremely important for canon lawyers. In my, you mentioned the role of law award before. Uh, in my talk that I gave in the role of law award, I'm going back to my own memory here, but I'm pretty sure this is accurate. If not mistaken, I used uh, the functional specialties that Bernard Lonergan described to, and to show you that, to show the, my, my audience that that was where he placed canon law. He placed it in practical theology, where you implement, you know, what you've learned in theology, your faith, et cetera, and so, so forth. And that was always struck me as very, very important to know that canon law is the handmaiden of theology uh, and 
end of doctrine, etc., and not vice versa. You know, canon law isn't yes. like a, some sort of thing out of the blue, you know, that, it, that exists. Even though sometimes we take doctrinal statements and put them in canons, that doesn't mean anything. The real canon law is an impl implementation of, and it's therefore got to be flexible. That's got to be something that, that is practical, that practical theology, as Lonergan said. And uh, to me, that was very important in regard to the database, because you can't limit yourself to just the text. If you limit yourself right. to the text, you're going to, you're going to get caught in a, in a bind sooner or later. Mm. Um, Very true. You have to have research. You have to have background. You have to have theology. You have to have history in, in all of this. And, you know, this is something that maybe younger members of the society might not appreciate as much. <clears throat> and that is, we sort of fought a battle, many of us, without even knowing it in the earlier days, especially, I suppose, prompted by the revision of the code with which we were so involved. Once you got a little taste of that and you realize we're changing the law, we're changing the law to be more accurately reflective of our church, of theology, et cetera. Once you've got a taste of that and we're very involved in the nitty gritty of it all, um, you begin realizing, you know what, as a society, we can't just stay like convention oriented. Mm -hmm. It can't just be that you have a convention and sort of meet people, see people, and hear a few talks and stuff like that. That's all good, very important. It's always still a centerpiece of, of the society's contribution. But you have to be involved in all of this. Uh, this is ongoing. And right. so and being involved in committee structure, for example, became much more important in my day, in my early days, than it had been. And, uh, it, and even so today, it's very important for younger canonists to get involved, to me, in the Canon Law Society's committee structure. Part yes. of a committee and, you know, work, do the work that needs to be done nitty gritty. You know, that's what I keep mm -hmm. saying. Practical mm -hmm. theology uh, and get it to be right, get it to be good. Um, and uh, so that's why the database is so important. If you could get a database that is really meets your needs uh, and it's easy therefore so we went there's an awful lot as you know yourself in your position that the society has produced over the years yes. and that you don't want to lose that you know mm -hmm. so that all of that has to go into the so we, for example we with the help of uh, a, a number of canonists who have worked on this uh, we, we um, for example, took all of the, uh, the documents that or some of the things that have been published, not just by the society, but even independently published, and got that into the database, which means that you don't right. have to use paper right now. You know, you can, you can, you can always have it. You can always yeah. have the books. Right. This will help you find it. This will help you find the stuff. So uh, to me, computers are really very important for this kind of research. And... Uh, and I'm happy to see that the database is now up and running and it's in integrated well into the, yeah. into the, uh, the website and everything. That was always a, a, a little bone of contention, you know, that we, it was too hard to, to use it. But right. now, I think it's, now I think it's easier to use. And hopefully the more it's used, the more it'll build. It'll, you know, it'll keep getting better and better.
I think so. And I, I've, I've used it myself. I can tell you that. Let me go back real quick. You were talking a few minutes ago about the other that obviously the study of canon law is not in a vacuum. In, in addition to canon law, you went on to get a civil law degree in the yes, 90s. So how do, that's as a civil and canon lawyer, I appreciate the comparative law. You know, you mentioned that. How did, how did that come about to decide to get well, you know what it is. I, I got involved. It's sort of like uh, by osmosis yeah. in, in a lot of a lot of civil law. First of all, in my position, as anybody who's in diocesan administration can tell you, you've you, you got to know your civil law, right? Uh, at least as it applies to your parishes, to your diocese, etc. So first of all, I was involved a lot in that. Secondly, I got involved by chance because of a case. I got involved in the medical ethics field of civil law which obviously has many things uh, you know, co crossing over to theology and, and, uh, and even canon law. And that was because of a famous case that occurred in New on Long Island called the Baby Jane Doe case. And it was about a little baby that was born with spina bifida. And the, the parents didn't want to do the operation that the hospital wanted. And the diocese came to their defense and said, this is extraordinary means and they have a right to make a decision for their child, which is the safer way to go and so forth. Well, I was involved, I'm the chancellor at the time, so I was involved very much and on the Medical Ethics Commission. And so um, that was fine, we got through all that, Every, everything we had a right got written and everything had settled peacefully and so forth. However, it must have come to the attention of Governor Mario Cuomo, father of the current Governor Cuomo, who had given a speech at Notre Dame University saying he was going to create a commission that dealt with these life and death issues. And somehow my name got in front of him and then I got put on a piece of paper, I get once again, as I've happened to be in the past, and I got a letter, the governor wants you to serve on this commission. So I started serving on the night in 1985 on the New York State Task Force on Life and the Law. And it, it produced many, many laws. I helped write some very good number of civil laws. I'll give you an example. The do not resuscitate law in regard to life-sustaining treatment. Uh, the healthcare proxy law, which became a model for many, many states around the country. Uh, the required request law in regard to organ donation uh, and so forth. There was also a great, great, I think it's great anyway, great um, report on physician-assisted suicide because these were the days of Dr. Kevorkian, if you can remember that name. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. yes. And uh, we, we resisted that. Uh, and it was a wonderful commission. It was really made up of all religions, all different disciplines, and, uh, and it worked very, very well. So anyway, with that and with what I was doing in the diocese, I was dealing with civil law, civil law, civil law all the time. And of course, the, the principles of civil law are, are way back in canon law. Mm -hmm. you know, even the... Even American, you know, sometimes we make this foolish distinction, even English common law, much of it came from canon law. So at any rate, I was, I had this job as, you know, during the day and I was helping in the parish on weekends, uh, but my night times were kind of free. So, you know, I said to myself, I wonder if I could go to law school. So without telling anybody, I took the LSATs and, uh, and when and I must have scored fairly highly because then the Dean of St. John's Law School offered me a scholarship. 
So I talked to the bishop and I said, he said, well, don't kill yourself, you know, which is what bishops like to say all the time. And I said, well, I don't think I will, but uh, if I can do it, I'll do it. It's not like I need this for my, you know, for my welfare or something like that. And it'd take four years. So that's what I did. So I went to uh, St. John's Law School and uh, did very well and uh, finished it in four years. And uh, if, you, if you have time for one little quick story, I'll tell you a very funny yeah. story sure. of the mixture of the two laws, you know, the canon law and civil law. I, in order to load, lessen my load one time, I, went to, I took a summer course where I could go during the day, you know, when I wasn't, things were a little lighter at the chancery office. And I had a vice chancellor to cover for me. So, so I was taking this thing and I took family law. So it has a lot of different topics in family law. It was taught by a judge, Judge Fogarty. And I'm sitting there, keeping my head down. And now at this summer course, there's a lot of my fellow night students. They all know me by this time. <laughs> Not that I wore my collar or anything, but they know me, you know, they know my background. I'm the old guy, you know, in the class. Because I was, I was 49 years old, something like that. This is in, uh, back in uh, 1990. So, uh, I was born in 1941. So at any rate, uh, but there's the day students there. See, it's like a mixture of day and night students. And usually there's a big a chasm between the day and night students. The day students kind of say, well, you know, we're, we're, we're full time. You know, those, those people there, they're workers. So um, at any rate, in this particular course, Judge Fogarty says at the end of one session, tomorrow we're going to talk about the newly passed Healthcare proxy law. Now, I have not only been on the task force that produced this law, I literally was on the small committee that wrote it. And I even helped a lot of it get through the legislature. He knew this. So, anyway, I'm still keeping my head down. He gave a very good analysis of the law. You could tell where we kind of made compromises and everything. And with about 20 minutes to go, he says, All right, are there any questions? And uh, Somebody asks a question, he says, you know, why should I answer these questions? We have sitting right here in front of us, Monsignor John Alessandro, who was on the commission that wrote this law. Monsignor, come up here to the podium with me, and you help answer these questions with me. And he, had, <laughs> he had not warned me about this. So uh, I said, wow, talk about the mixture of uh, the church and state. This is, this is really state place. And of course, I didn't have my collar on or anything, but now they know who I was. And I could see the, the buzz among the day students. You know, my, my, <laughs> my night students were laughing. They knew. Yeah. They knew me, right? But so anyway, just to, just to end it, let me just tell you a little corollary. A good 25 years later, I was at a meeting with a bunch of Catholic lawyers. Now, that, now I'm dressed up because I'm there as to pick a general or chancellor or whatever. And this lady comes up to me and says, this young woman, he says, are you Monsignor Alessandro? I said, yes. He says, You're, you went to St. John's Law School, right? I said, yes, I did. She says, I thought so. I was in that class with <laughs> Professor Fogarty when he asked you to come up and we all said, who is this guy we have to compete against? <laughs> I always thought that was the greatest symbol. That's that great. The greatest symbol. She but anyway, I, I, I have to tell you the, uh, the involvement of the civil law degree, and I have taught at St. John's Law School since then. I actually taught a very nice uh, uh, seminar 
which was great. I had like about only 20 students or something uh, on comparative law. How does canon law stack up against the civil law of New York State? Uh, regard, for example, in regard to parish corporation structure wow. and things like that. And you can give like conflicts and stuff, you know, that, that it'll be valid in canon law or invalid in canon law and valid in civil law and so, vice versa. So we had a great time. I enjoyed that very much. But uh, it really benefited me a great deal, even my work. And because now I, you know, I'm toe to toe with some lawyers. They know I'm a lawyer, a uh, civil lawyer, as well as a canon lawyer. And uh, it came in very handy. Yeah, that's great because law does, even I did my civil law degree first in the 90s and then canon law in the early 2000s. And it, it teaches you a different way to think civil law does and then that carried over for yeah. me into canon law and it may have been vice versa for you um even well especially because canon law is much more what we would call in civil law terms statutory law mm -hmm. you know it's it's much more of a, of a written law that way and it's right. so that the common law idea is not not not, so not not really something that fits into canon law too well but yeah. but on the other hand we know how to interpret statutory law canon lawyers and uh so hopefully, it helps. hopefully. <laughs> now, one last thing I'll mention uh, was the two the twenty fifteen book that you wrote Indissolubility in the Senate of Bishops Reflections of a Canon Lawyer was that your last book that was a Paulus Press yes uh, publication uh, and what prompted you to write that was that oh well I, that's always been a, one of my uh, even my my dissertation topic was on Gratian's notion of marital consummation as an element of of the formation of the marriage bond. And so it's always been something I've done nice. a lot of work in. If you look and see the talks I've given, everything, um, yeah. and I, I really felt that was important. And it was interesting because I wrote that. Maybe it wasn't the, the wisest thing to do, but I wrote it between the two synods. You know, I wrote it after the first synod in October, and then there was going to be another session of the same synod, right? And this book came out. I thought it would come out a lot earlier, like maybe March or April. Instead, it didn't come out till September. However, it did get around to the members of the, that synod because Cardinal Supich liked the book. And he bought a whole bunch of copies of it from Paulist and gave them out to all the members of the synod uh, for the second session. Oh, well, so I don't know if they have an influence or not, but out of that, those two synods, however, more important than my little work, which by the way, I got $15 of royalties last week. Oh, still. 15 whole dollars. <laughs> well, somebody bought it. Maybe two copies got sold or something. But at any rate, uh, after that, after that um, second synod, that's what led to Amoris Laetitia by Pope Francis. And, uh, and I really, and I gave a talk to the Canon Law Society on that, as well as being part of the, uh, the Cardinal Subic's, uh, uh Kind of like roving, roving panel that went from Boston to Chicago to San Diego, and talked to all the bishops about Morris Leticia and what it meant for us in terms of indissolubility and uh, so forth, and, and pastoral practice. So that that's why I was very interested. It's always been a great interest to me. Uh, the need to uh, what I said way at the beginning of our interview. You got to go back to history and theology. You can never stay static. Uh, it just doesn't work that way. Life doesn't work that way, and canon law doesn't either. 
No, and I think you've got such a well-rounded from, like you said, working in governance, you've done uh, the penal law side of things, you've done the marriage side of things, you've, and, and well-rounded in education. I just, you're just the model canon lawyer <laughs> for everyone to strive oh, yeah. for. It, that's and now just, I'm old too. Oh, uh, well. Can't do too much anymore. You've given uh, already some tips for new candidates, young candidates, those studying. Uh, any any final recommendations for new candidates or those who are? Well, first of all, don't be afraid of studying canon law. That's the first thing. Sometimes people might be put off a little if they're asked to do it. Uh, it's it's theological, and as long as you understand that, that'll help you in two ways. One, it'll help you understand the meaning of what you're studying and that you are being part of the theological efforts, that is the, the real pastoral efforts of the church. But secondly, it'll prevent you from getting rigid. You cannot get rigid when you're a canon lawyer. I, that doesn't mean you don't stand up for the law when, when, when it applies, but you always have to be aware of where it's coming from and where it may be going, uh, you know, because uh, things change, life changes, and we have greater insights. That's the whole point of uh, the development of theology and the development of doctrine. Well, guess what? If they develop, canon law's got to develop too. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I'm not making any predictions, but at some point there's going to have to be another revision. Uh, you know, there's already been revisions, we know, in various sectors. Uh, and but at some point, we don't know where we're going. Uh, and when it becomes neuralgic for the church, we get fixed and just like sort of sitting on your laurels instead of, instead of being authentic, then, then that's going to affect canon law. And unfortunately, it, it's important for canon lawyers to be in the forefront of, of saying, while we uphold the law, at the same time, we're not averse to change. We, that's what the history of canon law has taught us. Uh, we, we are the ones that are going to make the changes work. That's really what, that's the whole point of practical theology, Lonergan's functional specialty. We're going to put into practice the teaching and the theology of the church. And we have to be ready to do that in every way possible. Never being overly strict or overly rigid. Uh, knowing all the principles of canon law that make it truly a pastoral document. And at the same time, being open to change and being open to development in an orderly way. Because uh, we're canon lawyers, we like order. But it's got <laughs> to be the right order. It's got to be the church's order. And that is a theological, historical, and in the end, an order of Christ. You know, and that's who we are. That's eventually who we're trying to bring to the yeah. bring to people, right? That's right. I, I agree wholeheartedly. So who knows? Maybe there's another aggiornamento that will bring in maybe not a new council, but yeah, like you said, revisions to the code. And I think yeah. uh, being open to that is what the 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 hierarchy, so to speak. But it comes down to us to be uh, letting our letting the needs of the people be known as we practice and see what works and what doesn't necessarily work anymore. So I, uh, lots to think about. You've given us so much to think about. So Monsignor, I want to extend the sincerest appreciation for, on behalf of the CLSA, 
Um, our appreciation, our admiration for all that you've done. I'm, I was really excited to get your email when you said you would uh, be interviewed for one of these podcasts. It's a new venture for us, but we, uh, I think people will look back years from now and say, oh yeah, I've seen John Alessandro's name on those books. And, <laughs> and now they'll, they'll be able to hear your voice and just hear from your heart. Uh, what oh, led you, you into doing what, what you did and what you continue to do for the society, for the church, and for those of us in the field of canon law. So thank you for being with us today. Good. If I could just say one final thing to you. Absolutely. I appreciate all your work and the work of the staff um, for our CLSA, which I love very much. But I, I go back to the thing I said originally. It, it all comes down to people. And I received help from my fellow canonists in the early days. And that's how I got involved. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been involved. I don't know what my life, how my life would have gone I might, if I didn't have the CLSA colleagues to help me and to interact with me and guide me, push me, make me do things. And mm -hmm. I just hope that younger canonists will stay involved too, that they will get involved and that their older colleagues, uh, both men and women, uh, will guide them, mentor them, and, uh, and incorporate them. Uh, and that's because that's how you live and learn, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you for those words. That'll become our next uh, public service announcement for, <laughs> <laughs> for CLSA. So thank you so much again. And uh, who knows, we may be coming back for a round two of podcasts one of these days from you. So <laughs> good luck so, to you and your efforts. Thank you. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. God bless. Okay, God bless you too.